This message is entitled, What is Theology? And it's given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. During this hour, we're going to have to do a little bit by way of definition, and the hour wouldn't be complete unless we had some assignments, so we just as well start off right with an assignment. Collect references in the New Testament to teaching, knowledge, understanding, and certainty. And each of those four words should be in quotation marks. In other words, I'm emphasizing those four specific words. Collect references in the New Testament to, quote, teaching, quote, knowledge, quote, understanding, and quote, certainty, to show the importance of knowing doctrine, that is, Christian truth. And as a clue, it will be helpful to you to start in such books as the pastoral epistles, and particularly Timothy. A study of Timothy alone will make it abundantly apparent that it's imperative that Christians know doctrine. Sometimes you've heard people stand up and say, now I'm not going to be doctrinal, I'm going to be practical. That is an impossible statement. You cannot be practical without being doctrinal because your practice will always be the result of your thinking. And doctrine is nothing more nor less than God's thinking in this case, which hopefully gets into your mind. So you will be in practice what you are thinking. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Therefore, you cannot be practical without being doctrinal. And we would like to dissuade people of the idea that there is some kind of a shortcut to proper action. There is none. You will act in accordance with your thinking. And therefore, the scripture uses a number of references putting doctrine into the forefront. Doctrine, teaching. And I'm not going to suggest those. I'd like for you to have the experience of finding them. Use any tools you want to, any concordance or lexical devices and so forth, and make the assignment as worthwhile as possible to you. If you want to do it in the form of a talk that you might give to a group to stress the importance of doctrine, fine. However, it would be relevant to you. The first question that we want to work around this hour is what is theology? I'm going to have to labor this a little bit, and I trust you'll forgive the laboring of it. We'll get a bit more practical as we move along. But for right now, we're going to read off some definitions and some high-sounding language. Under what is theology, number one, a definition of systematic theology. This is a full and complete definition, rather wordy, so take it down seriatim. Systematic theology is the collecting, scientifically arranging, comparing, exhibiting, and defending of all facts from any and every source concerning God and the relations between God and the universe, especially as he has revealed himself in his word. Now that's about as comprehensive a definition of systematic theology that you can run into. And I think as you see the definition, you recognize that it is simply saying that all truth is God's truth that everything, therefore, that is true or truth ought to be related to God. 
And any truth that is not related to God is aborted. Therefore, if mathematics is taught truly, mathematics will be taught in its relationship to God. If cell division is taught truly, it will be taught in its relationship to God. For ultimately, everything that is has as its purpose the glorification of God. A total and complete definition of systematic theology, then, the study of God, must include everything. It must include everything in heaven and everything in hell and everything in between. It must include everything from natural revelation and everything from special revelation. That is, everything outside of the Word of God and everything within the Word of God. And it must present all of that in a systematic, orderly fashion. Now, the Bible is not a systematic theology, but the Bible contains a systematic theology. And therefore, it's our responsibility to not only read the Bible through and see what it says in its individual places, but to know what the total teaching of the Word of God is on any particular subject. And to the extent that we do not know the total revelation of the Word of God on a particular subject, to that extent we ought to reserve some of our statements. A little learning is a dangerous thing said Alexander Pope, and I believe that's true. And altogether too often, people are ready to pontificate as though they were students of all truth when they have just a smattering of truth, and therefore they give an abridged and consequently distorted teaching of the Word of God. When we talk about systematic theology then, we are interested in being able to present a total statement of a system of the truth, systematic theology. Secondly, other uses of the term theology. We have given a definition of systematic theology. I would like to relate that to other uses of the term theology, because you're going to see Biblical theology, historical theology, Bartian theology, natural theology, so on and so forth. And perhaps you will wonder, well, how does this differ from this? So let's look at the other uses of theology for just a moment to see what we're talking about. First, under other usage, would be the word biblical theology. Now some people, when they hear the term biblical theology, they would say, aha, that's what I want to study. I want to study biblical theology. I'm not concerned about systematic theology. I want biblical theology, and they treat it as though biblical is antithetical to systematic theology, but it is not, and that would reveal an ignorance concerning what biblical theology is. Biblical theology falls directly between two other disciplines, and tie a knot in a rope and hang on right here, and I think we'll make it. It falls directly between exegesis and systematic theology. Now, exegesis is analytical. It is analysis. Exegesis deals with things like 
word form, word relationship, and in bigger words we call that morphology and syntax. So that exegesis is studying the smallest parts, the moods, the tenses, the particles, the participles, the relationships between words and sentences and paragraphs and so on and so forth in the Word of God from the original language. That's exegesis. Exegesis means very simply to lead out. The word exegesis is used of Jesus Christ. Remember back in John chapter 1 when it says that he declared the Father? He was the exegesis of the Father. That is, Jesus was the leading out of what God is like. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has exegeted him. He has led him out. We're talking about a person getting down to the fine points of the Word of God, thoroughly understanding and leading out that truth. Eisegesis is reading into the text what isn't there. Exegesis is leading out from the text what is there. Now that's the basic area of analysis. Over on the other side of the spectrum here is what is called systematic theology, and that is synthesis. That is, that's taking all of the pieces that you took apart over here, and so arranging them, as our definition says, collecting, scientifically arranging, comparing, exhibiting, and defending of all facts, so that's taking all of these facts and now organizing them in such a way that you have a complete, integrated whole, a system of truth. Now those are the two ends, analysis and synthesis. In between those two comes biblical theology. Now, what is biblical theology then? It is the halfway point between the two. Biblical theology would take all that a writer said on a particular subject and organize and systematize that. For example, you have in a theological curriculum, you would have Johannine theology, you would have Pauline theology, you would have Petrine theology. Those are all phases of biblical theology. In other words, what was the development of that particular doctrine in that particular writer? Take the area of the Great Tribulation. We hear a good bit about this recently. In Daniel 9, 24 to 27, you have a brief statement in verse 27 of the Great Tribulation. Very, very limited statement. You wouldn't know very much about the Great Tribulation from Daniel 9.27. But if you were doing a biblical theology and you came to the eschatology, the doctrine of last things, according to Daniel, and you dealt with the Great Tribulation, you would have a limited amount of material to deal with. However, by the time you move through the progress of Revelation over to the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, you have from chapter 6 through chapter 19 spelling out the nature of the Great Tribulation. So that in the progress of Revelation, you have much more written by John in Revelation on the Tribulation than you do in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9. If one is going to make a total study then of the doctrine of the Tribulation, he would have to gather together what Daniel said in Daniel 9, what Matthew said in Matthew 24 and 25, what John says in Revelation 6 through 19. And putting all of those together, you would begin to have 
a systematic interpretation of the great tribulation, the doctrine of the tribulation. That would be systematic theology. Now, systematic theology would go a step beyond just collecting all that the biblical writers said because it also brings in all other things in God's creation that would relate to that doctrine. Because remember, it's from any and every source, not only the Bible. Systematic theology, then, is the total systematization of all of the analysis that you've done in each of the books of the Bible, moving through the process of biblical theology into a total system. When one completes that system, if it were a perfect systematic interpretation of the Word of God, it would be without any contradiction in it. Now, because God didn't give a systematic theology, and they are only formed by the efforts of men, they do partake of the fallibility of man's reasoning processes. And therefore, nobody has a perfect systematic theology. But we ought to always be seeking to integrate all that God has said from especially all of his word to have a system of theology that's true to the word of God. All that an individual writer said on a subject. So what Paul said about sin would be biblical theology in the area of sin, as Pauline thought puts it. When you put Paul and John and Peter and Jesus and all the rest of them together, then you have a total system. Secondly, theology proper. Theology proper is simply a major head of theology, which deals with the persons of the Godhead. It's a major head of theology that deals with the persons of the Godhead. We'll be going into that in the next couple of days. As you think through the divisions of theology, you begin with bibliology, and then you have theology proper, and you have anthropology and angelology and hamartiology and so forth down the line, the various phases of theology. Theology proper is the study of the Godhead. Under theology proper, you would study the Trinity. We had some very interesting exposure at Explo of a failure to follow through on an understanding of the Trinity. One of the brochures that was handed out, Don't Stop Now, outside, it said, uh, You are here, repent and desire to change your life. And then it came down, Don't Stop, be baptized in the name of Jesus. And then it makes an issue of the fact, not Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What is the name? Matthew 28, 19. And really the people that put these out are Unitarian with regard to Jesus. The United Pentecostal Church, the reason they were never accepted into the National Association of Evangelicals is they were basically Unitarian as it relates to Jesus. They see only one member of the Godhead, really, and that is Jesus. And they use Matthew 28, 19 in opposition as explained by Acts 2.38, be baptized in the name of Jesus. And they don't go into the analysis and note that there's a different preposition in Matthew 28 than there is in Acts 2.38, and it means an entirely different thing. And because they are not students and they don't bother to look at the analysis before they make their synthesis, they come up with a wrong deduction and start a whole movement, a whole denomination on it. And then hand out hundreds of thousands of pieces of literature promoting it so other people can partake in their error. <laughs> it's important to make a proper induction so that you may have a proper deduction. Thirdly, historical theology. 
historical theology is nothing more or less than the theology of the church as it has expounded the Bible. So you'll have in a seminary perhaps a professor of historical theology. He is simply giving you the teachings of the church down through history so that you'll have Augustinian theology at one juncture in the history of the church or Reformation theology or post-Reformation theology. This then becomes the theology of the church with its peculiarities down through history. So that as you look at theology, you can look at it from the historical perspective and see what things have been developed before and make certain correctives. Hegel said one of the greatest lessons of history is that we don't learn anything from history. Perhaps it would be well for us to think about that when it comes to new ideas. If you have a new idea today, check it with history. Chances are you're wrong. You know, chances are many people have thought about it before you ever thought about it. You may be right. Luther had a new idea in the theology of the church. For 1,500 years, the theology of grace had been perverted. He came up with sola fide, faith alone. If he had gone just by the history of the church at that point and their theological interpretation, he would never have done what he did at the Reformation. But by the same token, you should not avoid studying what has been said historically. So when we have an idea as to what the Word of God means, it's a good idea to check it by what have others felt that that meant and see whether you're completely off base or whether all of them are wrong. That may be true, too. Fourthly, you will find the phrase natural theology. Natural theology is simply theology apart from revelation. That is, it's based on reason and nature. It's theology apart from special revelation. Now, some people, in their exposure of systematic theology, would give a lot of weight the information they gain from natural sources or information they gain from their reason. For example, in Roman Catholicism, some of you at least have heard of the phrase Thomistic theology, T-H-O-M-I-S-T-I-C, Thomistic theology. That's the theology of St. Thomas, which is basically the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. St. Thomas had a tremendous confidence in the revelation that came from nature and from man's reason. So that as you read Roman Catholic theology, you will find a great deal of philosophy in it. You will find a lot of appeal to the philosophers, to Socrates, to Plato, to other philosophers. St. Thomas appealed heavily to naturalistic sources. In his systematic theology, so when you take the phrase, it's everything about God from any and every source, he is giving a lot of weight to every source and probably not as much weight as he should to the exegesis of the Word of God. On the other hand, there are people who tend to neglect the other sources and give themselves only to what the Bible says on a particular subject. Now, I would far rather err in the latter than in the former. If I'm going to leave one or the other out, I'd rather leave the naturalistic data out. But 
if one is going to have a complete theology, then there is something that is being said to us by the material universe around us. There is something that is being said to us by the good providence of God in the world around us. So that God says he makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. And he brings his rain on the just and the unjust. In God's everyday activity, he is saying something to us about himself. It is not as clear as what he says in the word, but he is saying something. Now, in contrast to Thomistic theology, in more contemporary theology, such as Karl Barth's Barthian theology, you have no appeal to the natural revelation. Barth would hold to the position, or did hold to the position before his death, that there is no revelation in nature at all. In fact, he would say that the Bible is not revelation. Rather, he said that revelation is only that which occurs when a believer takes the leap of faith out of this world situation into Urgeshikti. And if that doesn't make sense to you, then just forget it. But Bart had no place for the imminent God, the God who is here. He only had a place for the transcendent God, the God who is there. Now the beautiful balance is the God who is there is here. You see, we want in a systematic theology all information from any and every source concerning God and his works. If you're going to have a total statement. So much for the other uses of the term theology. Biblical theology, theology proper, historical theology, and natural theology. Now a third area. What about the relationship of this systematic theology to other disciplines? This is called the area of the theological encyclopedia. That is, the entirety of theological discipline, the theological encyclopedia. And it might be a good idea to be familiar with that term. You might come across it someday. There are seven steps in the theological encyclopedia. Let me just explain them quickly. I need to give these to you because we're going to be making some presuppositions next hour on the basis of this, which we will not study. And you need to be familiar with it. The first thing in a theological encyclopedia by way of study is the study of canonicity. In canonicity, we are determining, or we are recognizing, I should say, the books that are scripture. Canonicity is that study which recognizes what books that have been written may be classified as scripture. Now, not everybody agrees on what is scripture. In Roman Catholicism, you'll find their Bible is a little fatter. It has the Apocrypha in it. A Protestant Bible does not have it. Theirs does. The Apocrypha was something that was added later. Council of Trent. It was not included in the original councils where they were recognizing the canonical books. The Council of Jamnia, for example, around 300. Canonicity, then, is that study which seeks to recognize what books are 
scripture. And therefore, what books are binding for me to accept as a rule of faith and practice? Canonicity is determining what is scripture. Secondly, there have been people who have given themselves in history to the work of textual criticism. Now, most of us here wouldn't have the stick to to even begin to do this. Textual criticism is determining what reading of the scripture is the more accurate reading. Out of the various manuscripts that we have today, what are the ones that have the stamp of reliability on them. And textual criticism, otherwise called lower criticism, is that meticulous, laborious work of studying the text to see which is reliable. So in a Greek text at the bottom, you will have textual apparatus, which will tell you what manuscripts they have accepted for that reading, what lectionaries, what versions, what copies, and so forth to come at the text. The basic text that is used today is the Nestle's Greek text. But that is an entire study all by itself. And everything you're studying today, whether you recognize it or not, is based on your confidence that someone along the line practiced good textual criticism and got to you a Bible that is based on a good text. Now, we don't even have finality at this point on this. For there are two major schools of textual criticism today. One of those major schools of textual criticism would believe that the textus receptus on which the King James Version is based is the best text. Others would say, no, it's not the best text, but rather the text upon which the American Standard Version is based is the best text. The King James Version accepted their readings from later manuscripts. It was based on basically eight manuscripts that are from the 4th century onward, but it follows the mass of manuscripts. The ASB and the NASB follow the more ancient manuscripts which were found after the King James was translated. And if you happen to look, for example, at a passage like Mark 16, 9 to 16, in the ASV or NASV or RSV, you will notice that it says that Mark 16, 9 to the end, was not a part of the original text according to the best manuscripts which we have, namely the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. Now, some people will base a good bit of doctrine on Mark 16, 9 to the end. And it might be good for them to think through whether that really is scripture or not. There are three passages that are somewhat questioned. That is one of them. John 7, 53 to 8, 11 is another one. And 1 John 5, 7 is another. That's the work of textual criticism, determining which is the best text to use. Thirdly, you have the area of historical criticism. This is called higher criticism, and this is usually more destructive of the scripture. The liberals have a field day in higher criticism or historical criticism. This is basically the work of determining the date and the author and the purpose and so forth of a particular book of scripture. 
Now, this is an important study because it makes a lot of difference when a book was written and by whom it was written and to whom it was written in the interpretation of that book. But this discipline has also been subjected to a great deal of unbelief on the part of liberal critics. For example, usually the Johannine epistles have been given a very late date in the second century in order to justify the fact that they were not written by the Apostle John, but that they were written by perhaps members of the Essene community in the second century. Interestingly enough, archaeology today has demonstrated that 95 was not at too early a date for John, but rather today 85 AD is being suggested. And if you're watching the papers recently, you saw about the Roman Catholic priest who is doing these studies in Mark in which they believe that what he has may be dated at about 56. That means then that if he has a document that is that ancient, it is either an original or it is a very close copy of the original. Rather significant from the standpoint of textual criticism and demonstrates from the standpoint of higher criticism that it wasn't done in the second century by a later writer. Or in Daniel, very often liberal critics will seek to say that Daniel was written in about 165 B.C. instead of back in the sixth century because they want to make Daniel's writing after the things he prophesied and thereby destroy the supernatural character of the prophetic elements of Daniel's writing. That's the area of historical criticism. The next area you deal with then is the area of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of the principles of biblical interpretation. We're going to spend at least two hours on this in the area of bibliology. But I want to just stress to you right now that I don't care how good a doctrine of the inspiration of the scripture you have you may believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scripture and its consequent inerrancy and infallibility and so on and so forth. You can have a tremendous doctrine of inspiration, but if you do not exercise adequate principles of interpretation of the word of God, you do not have God's word. You do not have God's word until you have the meaning for the words that God used in the context. Words have many meanings, but they only have one meaning in a context. And you do not have God's word until you have God's meaning for God's word through God's writer. Anything else is your word, not his word, and he never promised to bless that. And there are a lot of people today who have a strong doctrine of inspiration who could care less about whether they have been accurate in interpretation or not. And the science of biblical interpretation is tremendously important if we're going to have God's word. Well, out of the principles of biblical hermeneutics then comes the work of exegesis. Now, we already related to this earlier, so we perhaps don't need to stress it again. Exegesis, getting down into the nitty-gritty of the analysis of the text, the finest particle, the tenses, the mood, the voice, the conjunction, 
so on and so forth. Exegesis is getting down to find out exactly what God said and then bringing up an interpretation of those analytical facts on the basis of your good principles of hermeneutics. Now, once you have exegeted everything in a book according to good sound principles of hermeneutics, based on proper historical criticism and textual criticism in the books which are the scriptures, then you are ready to suggest the theology of John, for example. What has John said with regard to sin? What has John said with regard to the second advent of Christ? And you begin to build your biblical theology out of a consistent exegesis based on proper hermeneutical principle. And once you have completed a biblical theology, you are then prepared to begin a lifelong work of understanding the system of theology in the Word of God. So that you're interested not only in what John said on sin, but what the entire Word of God says on sin. And what the entire Word of God says on the second advent, and so forth. A systematic theology, a total statement of the teaching of the Word of God on any and every subject, including everything that God has said from any and every source. Now you say, if I felt that I had to do all of that to understand the Word of God, I just believe I'd give up. I don't believe I'd even start. Well, you'd sure save us a lot of problems if you did that. James chapter 3 says, Stop being many teachers, my brothers, knowing that you shall receive the stricter judgment. And I spend a lot more time today correcting error than I do preaching truth. Simply because in Southern California, for example, you have 428 different sects and cults which claim to be faithfully expounding God's Word. They have not gone through the simple procedures, basically, of this bottom line. Most of us will not get involved in the top line. We're going to accept the labors of others at that point. But we all have to get involved in this bottom line somewhere along the line. Someone says, well, you don't have to be a systematic theologian to share the four laws, to share your faith. That's right. You need to know that you're saved, and you need to know why you're saved. You need to know who Jesus is. But you don't have to be a systematic theologian of the entire Word of God. But may I suggest to you that if you're not, then reserve some of your statements. And when the person that you're sharing Jesus Christ with says to you, well, that matter about God has a wonderful plan for your life. I don't believe in election and predestination. And so you begin to pontificate on the synthesis of the doctrine of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and you warp it all out of shape and cause all kinds of problems for people. When you don't know, just say you don't know. And tell them, you know, I'm studying the Word of God, though. And I know people who do know, and I believe I can ask a few questions, and I believe I can get some answers for your questions. There are some things I know, and I'm going to say those certainly, and I'm going to say them positively. Don't deal in your doubts. Deal in your certainty. 
Talk about the things you know, not about the things you don't know. And you'll begin to learn to know a lot of things you didn't know. For Jesus said in John 7, 17, if any man wills to know of the doctrine, he will know. We'll talk more about the prerequisites for that in the next hour.